I would agree with you. I was the same way at the beginning. You know, it was kind of, uh, for whatever reason, not as smooth feeling as yesterday, but after a while it kind of became just pretty good, like back and forth conversation I felt and it, it went yeah. pretty easily. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think a few more turns at this thing, it'll, it, the more we do it, the more natural it's going to be. I, I did notice this. I just throw it out there because you probably have some observations too, but I think it would be, I noticed that like I was talking for really long periods of time. Like it'd be interesting if we could maybe make it more of a dialogue, more of a back and forth. Cause I think there's, you know, I'm going for maybe, two minutes or something like that before you even get a word in, you know? Sure. Yeah. And I don't think in some, in some respects there's, I don't think there's a danger to that, but yeah, I think we could, we could make it, um, yeah, more, more small chunks back and forth rather than kind of a full, you know, two minutes or three minutes. Yeah, I'm of thinking just of like, you know, I don't know what made me think of this maybe cause you listen to them all the time, but like a Todd and Todd type thing where it's just like, yeah, those fucking guys and then you're jumping in and you're like yeah, that's my, you know and it's just like <laughs> they're kind of going back and forth so okay I just found the uh, shock mount for the Yeti microphone that I use it's, an, it's, a, oh. it's a different piece you have to buy but possibility if, if I have any trouble with it that's good that's good to know uh were you taking a leak I did yeah did you hear that too? <laughs> it was awfully clear yeah wow that's funny man the bathroom's <laughs> right around the corner so. that's pretty funny <laughs> I love it it's good <laughs> shit works yeah it's I'm excited to hear it because right I haven't done a test at all so um but I'm excited if it sounds anything like you do then it's gonna be a pretty good deal so yeah I would say Maybe better. I don't know. I think that my that mo- that microphone's very popular. I do know that. Rave reviews for the price too. I mean, it was forty nine bucks. Yeah. So that was pretty yep. neat. I, okay. I suppose the best. The first thing is uh, we can start out with uh, since we're new. Why yeah. don't uh, Why don't you introduce yourself and uh, talk by yourself a little bit? Yeah, sounds good. So for any of our. For, do we have listeners? If we have listeners out there, thank you for our listeners um, for joining our podcast. Uh, so my name is Mike Sheehan, and I am a full stack developer. Been doing full stack development now for, I don't know, I got started doing this thing probably about 20 years ago when I was still in school. And I live in San Francisco uh, California. I'm a new resident. I was in Seattle for about five years and just moved here a few weeks ago. So I'm pretty new here. And that's kind of what's going on. I, I'm i doing work primarily in the middle tier. I don't know. What should I say about this, Kyle? <laughs> I don't know what to talk about. Well, we should talk a little bit about, I think, um, we have a history together um, even before this or even before Seattle. Um, we both originally were living uh, and working uh, in Omaha, Nebraska at a hospital there where we right. uh, worked together uh, for, I don't know, what two years maybe. Yeah. At which time uh, I went ahead and moved to Seattle uh, and began working at a hospital out here. And probably, what, five years or so, I would say, after I moved, uh, Mike originally came down and we met up uh, on a rooftop bar and and you kind of wanted to get back into this space after being out of it for a little while and, and 
it kind of worked out really, really quickly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I came out there in the summer for a Microsoft Visual Studio Live conference that was just happening in August, I think. And then by November, I had the job lined up and was driving across the country. <laughs> that's crazy. It happened quick. So yeah. we both kind of worked in different jobs for a few years. Um, and lo and behold, here in Seattle at the company that we both currently work at called Quote Wizard. Uh, we are working together again and have been for, I don't know, a year and a half, I guess, at this point. Yeah, almost 10 years uh, apart. Cause I think we started working together in 2006, and so you came back in 2016 to join the team, and it's been about, you know, that was about 10 years. That's right. pretty cool. That's right. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, my name is Kyle Johnson, and uh, I'm originally from rural northwest Iowa, and moved to Omaha, like I said, here just a bit ago, uh, made my way into Seattle and, and have been here ever since. I'm also a full stack dev, um, mostly on the .NET platform. Uh, I specialize primarily, I guess I would say, in the middle to front end tiers, uh, probably the area that I enjoy working the most. You know, I was just thinking to myself, we should uh, make sure that the Pecanator sees this, or hears this rather. The Pecanator. Maybe, maybe we'll have to even bring him on sometime. He could be another guest on our list. That's <laughs> there you the go. Of guests. That's right. He was our first. He was our first real manager. Our first real manager that I had out of college for me. I think you had another gig before that, but uh, he was a great guy to work for. I had a great time with Don. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think uh, he was really easy to get along with. Obviously, I think if I remember correctly, he hired me on, and then you were very shortly thereafter. Um, yep. But yeah, he was uh, he was real easy to work with. We had a great time in Vegas when we went to that conference. We'll have to dig up some of those old photos. <laughs> I guess um, explain a little bit of the history of, of coffee and code and, and kind of what we did and why we're doing it. Yeah, I can, I'll talk about that. I remember that pretty clearly. I mean, it's been about six years, but when I had the idea to come back to Seattle while well, I was here for that conference and I started talking to you about, you know, wanting to get back into things. At that time, I had try. I had a business doing home automation type stuff, and so doing some coding during that time, but not really. And and I thought to myself, "Gosh, I got into business to really do the technical things I wanted to do, and I was doing none of those things. I was just doing everything else, finding jobs, marketing, sales, accounting, that sort of thing." And I said, "If I don't really get back into development full time," I'm just afraid that I'm going to lose my edge. You know, I'm afraid that I won't have a chance to get back in, that there's a narrow window there. So it was out of my, you know, fear and this, like this realization that I had been gone from web development for far too long, five years, you know, that's like in web development years, like a lot of years. And so we talked a lot. You had given me some buzzwords, some things to look into to research, to get up to speed because a lot had changed on the front end in, in those time over that time. And I just, uh, I, I don't remember who initiated the idea. I think you maybe offered up that if, if we wanted to get together, you would show me some things that you were working on. And so we kind of got together at a coffee shop a few times. And I think it turned into like a Thursday night coffee and code kind of a thing like we had going for a while. And we even had uh, other people join us at one point in time for just sharing ideas and, and talking about different technologies and cool things that we were doing. Yeah, that's right. I think we were both kind of working on different types of projects at the time. And uh, I recall just kind of sharing sharing knowledge and, and asking questions about how to do things correctly or 
other ways to do things and just, you know, just general learning. And I think, um, the, the other people that kind of came and went, you know, um, I think they benefited from the same type of thing. They were just interested in learning from other folks who had been doing the same types of things. And, and, uh, yeah, it was just a great learning experience for everybody and relaxing atmosphere. And so we decided to kind of take that same idea and make it a podcast, I guess, is effectively what it is. Maybe not quite so much deep into the weeds of code, but, um, still with some kind of talk of, uh, different technologies and frameworks and, and best practice and that sort of thing. Yes, I'm in. Let's do it. That sounds really good. <laughs> All right. So next let's talk about, uh, let's talk about your new gear, man. I want to hear about your gear. Yeah, I got some new gear. So when, when you brought, when we talked about the idea of doing the podcast, uh, you know, we did that trial run, um, on some, crappy gear and and you sounded really good because you have some good stuff and so um i splurged and since i knew we were doing our first podcast tonight i ordered some amazon prime stuff yesterday uh which got here like 20 minutes ago so i just got it set up but what is this thing this is the blue snowball blue snowball yes it's pretty good i mean i don't know what it sounds like yet but i i think from what you're saying it sounds pretty good i i like the gear i did the same i actually have uh, a blue mic as well but mine's the blue yeti um i've actually had it for i don't know gosh three years probably at this point or something i at one point thought i would do kind of a solo podcast thing and that was a huge embarrassing failure but <laughs> oh i didn't know that you had gotten into well that. i wanted to at one point try to do a a fitness kind of podcast, I guess. I did have a run-in with that at one point, which I'm sure we'll get more into later. But yeah, yeah, doing them doing doing them alone is is quite a whole different a whole different thing. <laughs> <laughs> I woun't have done it myself. That's why uh, I don't have any other content out there. It was just like the idea of even doing it with you. I was a little nervous at first. Oh gosh, I don't know how this is gonna go. But I, I yeah, it was great to have a partner in this, in this process. I think it makes it a lot easier. It, it, you can kind of roll off of whatever the other person says. And I think there's just a, a good banter that goes with it. Otherwise you're just kind of just talking and talking, talking. And, and I feel like it's, you kind of lose the kind of like you did earlier, you kind of lose track of what the hell you're talking about and talking <laughs> circles or something like that. Right. Yeah. Easy to do. What's happened in the news? Yeah. I want to talk about what's going on in the news a little bit. There's a few things that are kind of cool to talk about. Um, being new to San Francisco, I've been, I've been seeking out other cool things to do in the dev community. And, and there was a, uh, conference actually ended today. This Google dev summit was at the Yerba Buena center right down the street over here. And I didn't go, I didn't find out about it until it was too late really, but, um, I've been following it anyway. And there's some neat stuff coming out of there. Trusted, this trusted web activity. So it's, so basically what is this conference? This conference is Google's Chrome conference. They talk about new dev happenings with uh, big announcements on the browser. And one of the topics that came out was this trusted web activities. I don't know a lot about it. It sounds like it's a way that you can leverage the Chrome browser in your native apps. I mean, there's kind of this fusion happening between native development and, and Chrome and so what I understand just from a brief glance at it is that it's a way to leverage more of the uh, the power of, of the Chrome browser in some of your native applications. I think I was reading kind of into the same thing. I, I didn't know a lot about this until this morning. 
but yeah, it looks like it's a it's an integration into Chrome, trying to integrate more native applications into the Chrome browser itself, and and kind of continuing what you've seen with Chromebook and what you've seen with kind of Google as a whole, and this kind of unification of their platform to try and kind of blend or blur rather the lines between you know what is a desktop app, what's a web app, and do you even care? I guess. Yeah, exactly. And it it really doesn't matter at this point. I mean, most everything's happening on the mobile devices these days anyway. So I think it's just a natural progression that we're coming to this this unification hopefully. Well, and I think you have a Chromebook, do you not? I mean, how you've been you've been pretty happy with yeah. that, I think so far. Yeah, the I do. I have one of the Acer Chromebooks. It's one of the older ones, but it's um it wasn't, you know, it's it's like a generation older than what was just recently announced. I've been pretty happy with it. I I would say the though the the hardware on that is, you know, you pay for what you get. I think they have some really new ones, nice ones now that have come out that are a little more a higher price point. But uh I was impressed anyway at what I could do with with a $300 laptop. I was able to remote in to my development environment and, and do some coding and that sort of thing. So, pretty robust for 300 bucks. Pretty pretty cool devices. I feel like the biggest danger here is that Google already, to a large degree, has some pretty heavy fragmentation. For instance, Chromebooks like yours that are somewhat dated even already, uh, already can't run a lot of the apps that are available in the App Store, for instance, or maybe not any apps at all. And now you're kind of adding this additional layer on top of that. And so I just, I feel like you're getting this very large fragmentation set of this set of laptops can do X, this set of laptops can do Y, and they're all running the same software, I believe, as I understand, but their their capabilities are different just because of manufacturers. Yeah, it's really confusing even being in the tech space. I found it really confusing to try to navigate that, you know, for example, wanting to install Netflix and, and take advantage of some of the capabilities of the Netflix app for Android. You, you know, you don't get that on, on that Chromebook, so... Um, partially because of the hardware. I think it has 32 gigs of RAM or something like that. There's not there's not a lot of storage on there either. So um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I know that because of the hardware limitations, then there's a software limitation as well. And so, yeah, it's just a, it's kind of a muddy area right now. And so things I thought would work didn't, didn't work, and it's a little challenging. It sounds like to me that, that Google is trying to kind of get out of, ahead of the oncoming 5g internet connection because of because of that coming down the pipe this is kind of maybe a something that they're trying to put out in front of that and so that they're able to harness the power of 5g and again continue to kind of blur the line between what is a web app and what isn't you know a native application on on your device i think it's a good strategy i think it's just a little premature obviously like the there's there's a lot more that i think the software could be capable of doing and so uh i think it's it's in the right on the right trajectory but it's not quite mature enough yet for for everyday users especially people who are used to using windows and installing applications and that sort of thing yeah i would i would tend to agree every if everybody that i've everybody that i know that has used one of those so far um which is you and and i think one other person that i've i don't know two other people um have kind of had about the same experience you know it's good for a pretty limited set at this point of things to do and i think this will help maybe move that platform forward and and make it a more useful platform as a whole 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think yesterday you got another delivery. Is that right? A, a brand new device. Yes, I got a brand new device. Finally, I replaced my Nexus 5X, which I was ready to t- toss out the window. That thing was really, it's really interesting, the timing on these things, because like all of a sudden it got really crappy the last few weeks. I've had it. Uh, <laughs> fancy that. Just coincidence, I think, huh? But um, but yeah, I got a new Pixel 2 yesterday, and I've, I've been test driving it for the last you know day and a half. So far, it's really good. I don't have the XL. I just got the regular 2. And so I don't have, there's been a lot of complaints about this, the, you know, the screen on the XL. I think I saw something today talking about the sound. Like there's some sound issue now that people are talking about like uh, when, when they're wearing headphones or something that there's like this, some kind of clicking sound that's coming through. I don't know. I haven't had that problem yet, but other people are reporting that as well. But I'm very happy. It's a great phone. It's actually, you know, I would, I would say especially over the, I'm on project Fi as well. So for me, like, you know, it's really nice to have kind of a first class device for Fi. This thing's great. It feels, you can feel it in the hardware. It has some weight. It has some gravitas to it. It's a really nice device, camera video. I mean, just the overall experience, it puts it right up there for me, you know, at, at an iPhone. It's a competitive product to the iPhone. Everything that I've read about this thing and, and, don't get me wrong, I don't know a whole lot about it because I am not an Android user. Um, but everything I've read says that this piece of hardware is, is barring the screen, if the screen was not a problem, they would say that this is like the, the bar none, the best hardware that's available at this current time, even beating the iPhone X, I guess. The <laughs> if, if I had one complaint, even, you know, just from a, a purely aesthetic, you know, I don't, I, personally... As I'm looking at this, a picture of this phone, and it's it's two tone on the back. At least this particular model, it's black. This is the black and white edition. The panda. So, is that is that what it's called? It's called panda. Okay. And uh, not only that, but it also has an orange, an orange button on the side. I I don't. <laughs> I guess I don't get their design decisions here. But beyond that, I mean, it, it certainly looks like a pretty solid piece of hardware. I would say that the iPhone X has kind of ruined for me the whole kind of small or or compressed bezel kind of look that this has so i mean the even even though the bezels are are very very compressed on this you know they're they still seem very very large and awkward at least in pictures maybe they don't feel that way in terms of the device on the top and bottom are you saying yeah, yeah, yeah. On the on the front where the camera and the the speakers and cuz you have stereo speakers is what it appears maybe. That's right. Yeah. So, I guess what I what I was getting at is that, you know, just because of seeing iPhone 10 renders or X or whatever the hell it is you want to call that, it kind of makes all phones now feel kind of big and clunky, especially if they have these kind of big areas up, you know, above and below the screen. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as clunky. I think for me, particularly coming from the Nexus, this is a lot more streamlined. It's a thinner device. It's not plastic. It's aluminum. So, and gla- you know, it, the feel of it is definitely more streamlined. In fact, it's interesting. The, the physical screen size is actually a little smaller. I held it up next to my Nexus, and the Nexus has a little taller screen. Not by much, but it's it's enough. It's noticeable. However, the resolution on this one's, you know, greatly improved. So I think that makes up for whatever was lacking in size. It would be nice to have, you know, have them take advantage of more of the the space. But but I don't 
I don't mind it. I'm used to it already, so I think that's probably part of it. If you if you had something that was more of that aesthetic, I think it would be hard to come back to something like this. But if you haven't had it before, then I'm not really sure it's going to be a problem. Well, and as much as I like the the iPhone X with with the full edge to edge screen, it it does come with its own oddness where you have what they call the notch or you know where the where the all the different cameras and the face detection and all that sort of thing is is stuck into the very top of the, the device and there's this weird cutout that cuts out the middle of your screen effectively and s- causes all kinds of problems especially when you consider that if you turn that into landscape mode all the different UIs that have to adjust for that sort of thing so it does come with its problems it's just I feel like now that that's kind of out there and it's been out there it it sets a pretty high bar for for what devices should look like, I guess. Yeah. I was really surprised by that, actually, that they didn't go all the way. I know that there's constraints, right, to fit all that equipment above that, but I was really surprised to see them notch it out like that. I just can't imagine where Steve still running, you know, at the helm here, that this would have passed muster, right? I, I don't know. It's just kind of surprise, a surprising move to me that they wouldn't just keep a clean line on top there. I would agree. I I, I think, you know, to be honest with you, I don't have any intention of buying the iPhone 10, and that's coming from somebody who's owned, gosh, I think I'm on probably my fourth iPhone at this point, maybe fifth. So I'm definitely a fan of the series. I'm definitely a fan of Apple in general, but I, I'll be honest with you, I, I feel like they're, um, I guess to be, I guess to be fair, I feel like uh, phone hardware is is stagnant in general at this point. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's impressive to see Google be more competitive in the space like they've made some really great strides but they're not really introducing a whole lot of new technology here like they're just getting up to speed with what's already been presented by others in the in the space well i mean you have the squeeze the squeezy squeezy effect right yeah that's interesting i i don't know how much i'm going to use the squeeze i've you know i've done it a few times it feels a little weird i don't don't really care i i don't know what does it even do? Like, what is the what's the function of squeeze, or is there is it different per app, or how, what is it supposed to do? I haven't read a whole lot about this. I think at this point, all it really, I mean, all I've gotten it to do is just bring up the Google Assistant. So it's just kind of a shortcut to the Google Assistant. Um, maybe there's something in app that you could do with it, but I'm not sure if those are if those APIs are available. So one of the big stories that's coming out about these phones, maybe not this one in particular. I think it's more specific to the XL. Is that these things have all kinds of screen troubles and and I've been reading a number of articles and I read one today I think it was from the verge um, that had some pretty pretty powerful imaging that that compared and contrast an iPhone I would assume the 8 because I don't think the X is available to the to the pixel 2 XL and and the color saturation was like just complete crap and and you were looking at some icons that were kind of at the top middle of the screen think one was even a google icon and and as they went from like left to right from the left corner down to the center of the screen there was about five icons and the the google ended up in the middle and that particular icon was just super muddy and dirty colored it almost looks like it was supposed to be transparent but it wasn't and what was made it really bizarre was as they went from left to right there was you know pure white on the left and as they moved toward the center they just continued to get even more and more muddy and it was really it I don't know. It's just really bizarre. I've heard some some additional 
problems coming with screen burn in uh, yeah. with those phones as well. I don't know if that's limited to just the XL or if the if the if the two is having that problem as well. I don't know. What do you know about that? I think it's just the two XL at this point. I haven't heard anything, any reports of it happening on the on the two. Yeah, at this point, I know like some of those guys like TNW and some others have, uh, I think the Verge had originally recommended, you know, a lot of recommendations to go all in on the XL and they've since retracted that and said, look, you know, like aside from being a little smaller, like the two is still the, at this point, the better phone. I mean, there aren't any problems with it to that extent, the screen or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's funny to look at. I'm looking at the Verge article right now, and they have they have like a little slider where you can kind of slide left to right. The same image, uh, one one is kind of a screen grab of the iPhone, and one is a screen grab of the Pixel X uh, Pixel Two XL. And <laughs> the XL version almost looks like you put some kind of crappy Instagram filter or something on top of it. It's it's really dark, and and there's a lot of green tones to it. It's it's really really bizarre. I don't. I'd be curious to know, you know, what the screen problem is here, because another piece that they mentioned in this article is Google's response to this. And Google kind of came out with the, uh, well, you know, nothing's wrong here. We actually did this on on purpose and we, you know, it's even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And so, you know, they're basically saying if they get a lot of negative feedback on the thing, they'll maybe reevaluate their position. But at this point, they're pretty much saying that, hey, this is okay. This is the way we wanted it. Wow, it's hard. To, it's hard to understand how that could be the case. That uh, it seems like it was maybe a bit rushed or somehow passed some QA. I don't know. It's such a big product launch and such a critical time for them uh, in the phone space. Even that, I'm kind of baffled that it got to this point. So not only that, there's supply constraints on this phone. Um, and it's, I believe, also, again, for the Pixel 2 XL, I would imagine maybe for the same types of reasons, right? It's um, problems building the display, making the display work as as expected, or... Yeah, I'm, I'm less uh, familiar with that one. I'll say this. I know there's some there are some uh, delays right now on, on the white one, so uh, across the board. Like, I ordered the graphite or black or whatever the color is, you know, I, and that came... I ordered two phones at the same time. I ordered a white one for my wife and I ordered the black one for me and mine showed up today. I think hers is coming later on in the week or next week. So I I know that that's one of the challenges right there is just with some of the white ones, they're being delayed as much as a month. I heard. Yep. You're absolutely right. As I read through this a little more, I lost, lost my highlighting from earlier, unfortunately. So yeah, it's, it's specifically for the 64 gig model of the white pixel two. Yeah. And, and for those that are, Delayed, Google is offering a free live case, which is normally a $40 value. Oh. So there you go. Hey, all right. I don't like... <laughs> so you better get on that. I don't like a case. I mean, it would be necessary for her because we'd be replacing phones probably every month, but... Um... <laughs> I can I can identify with that. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm the same way, to be honest. If I didn't ride a bike, I probably wouldn't have a case on mine either, and to be honest with you, I feel like that's something that you buy the phone for. You 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 buy the phone for kind of the design, the feel, and and putting a case on that, you lose you lose all that. You know, you lose the design, you lose the feel of the phone. You, you know, you add a bunch of thickness. So I'm with you. I, I definitely would like. I prefer to not have a case. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm the same way. I've been that way because I was a big iPhone guy for a long time. You know, and I probably would be if I I, I didn't switch to Fi. 
but um yeah i never i never understood that i mean the for the price and the quality of the products i always wanted to just have the the bare metal or yeah al- i agree al- aluminium if you there will. you go <laughs> what do you think are they ever going to put an iphone on google fi i doubt it i doubt it i don't see that happening anytime soon it it you know yeah that's an interesting one i don't see that happening I feel with the hardware push that Google's making into these pixels and trying to compete with Apple, I mean, it it makes no sense for them to do that really at this point. It's unfortunate because I think that would bring just a truckload of people to their Google Fi product. However, I don't feel like that's a moneymaker for them. I feel like the price point is an attraction to bring people to the Google platform. Yeah, I agree. And I've been, I've been on the Project Fi for what, better, about a year and a half now and you know a year and a half ago two years ago it was a really appealing option because you still had these really kind of it was before the price shift started happening with with some of the big guys uh, but now you have pretty competitive pricing coming from you know t-mobile and at&t's got different plans now where the you know it's it's really competitive and so it's not as compelling anymore i think to some of these um to switch these big carriers to come over I like it because of the international travel that I do, fair amount of international travel, and I can bring this thing anywhere. I've, you know, I've been on, gosh, almost every continent with this thing, and and I've had no problems from the UAE to France to you know Spain. It just works, and so that's a compelling reason for me. But otherwise, I I don't know if you're just a domestic phone user that there's really a compelling reason to switch at this point. I think I've evaluated it any number of times, even even just for myself, because Christina will never switch from an iPhone. I, at this point, you know, through all my research, I look on Verizon, who who I'm on currently, and for me to drop off Verizon and to switch to Google Fi, you know, when you when you calculate the monthly cost plus, you know, say a monthly to month pay payment plan for a phone and that sort of thing, ultimately you end up coming up to about the same amount of money as it costs me to stay on the Verizon plan. So there's really not a huge benefit. I, I feel like the big benefit comes if you get two lines. So when you get two lines, then suddenly, bam. Like the second line really is only costing you, you know, maybe an additional $20 or whatever for the phone and then whatever uh, data usage it is that they're using. So suddenly that's where I think the really extravagant savings come from. And so unfortunately for me, I really, really love the idea of the the international roaming. And in fact, we use that a lot when we were in France recently uh, via one of your <laughs> data data only sims, which which was fantastic. Yeah. I certainly could switch to T-Mobile as well, but they're not the greatest carrier on the face of the earth in terms of coverage. I have been able to use Verizon pretty successfully with their $10 a month FlexPass plan or whatever it's called. It's something to that effect. Pretty much any country you're in outside of North America, you can use a $10 a month or pay $10 a month and it effectively lets you use your plan just as if you were in the United States. Yep. Not a bad deal. And I think it's get, it's getting better. The prices are getting more competitive. And, you know, already you see things where you get unlimited texts in Canada and Mexico and that sort of thing. So I think it's only a matter of time, very short amount of time before you'll have other international plans that are more competitive too. Yeah, I would agree. I think the carriers are, are definitely pushing harder and harder and getting in more and more price competitive. And in fact, I think the same plan that I was kind of mentioning earlier with Verizon Anywhere in in Mexico or Canada, I think it's five bucks instead of ten bucks a day. So we've definitely used that a number of times as we travel up to Vancouver or, or that sort of thing. So yeah, 
Amazon. Amazon is moving campuses or wants to create another campus. HQ2. Oh, yeah. HQ2. That's right. Those proposals all had to come in. What was the deadline? I think it was Monday. Is it Monday? Friday? Was there a deadline? I didn't know there was a deadline. I just knew they hadn't decided on one yet, right? Well, supposedly, yeah. Supposedly, they haven't decided yet. I think that they probably knew before their competition what they were going to do, but they just wanted to see what kind of deals they could get. But they have a lot of options. 238 proposals came in across, looks like, uh, all of North America. So you had some, looks like there was some activity in Mexico. Uh, I know there were some entries in Canada and then quite a few in the U.S. too. Even I It think, looks like the U.S. only about, what, seven states maybe weren't included. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a huge, they have a map on their site about this and it's pretty much all dark green except for just a few places. They won't be there. They're, you know, uh, any opportunities in North Dakota or South Dakota, Montana. I think they wanted to have a little bit more going on up there. So I've kind of kept my head in the sand about this. I've heard a lot about it, like the you know the city that was going to change its name to Amazon, and you know all these crazy ideas that these people have to try and lure Amazon to to their city. What um, I mean, aside from it just being you know Amazon headquarters too. What what is the story here? They're just trying to get proposals from every city to, to find out who will give them the best tax deal, the best, you know, space. What's, what are they looking for? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what I understand. It's a few of those things. I, th- I think, you know, what you're probably more in tune with in Seattle is just like this. I think there's a little resistance to the political climate there towards big business. And I know that they've been, you know, less than pleased with just their treatment in Seattle. It's kind of being the big, corporation that came and you know transformed the city and in not such a positive way and 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 it's been difficult for them i think it's been expensive it's been a challenge and i I think so there's that side of it as well as just the amount of hires i mean there's only so many engineers that they can grab in the northwest in seattle i think that's another issue so that to have something in another geography where they can grow another 50,000 employees, it's going to be hard to do that just in Seattle. Yeah, I think it makes it makes pretty good sense. And I think they already have, you know, a number of distribution centers where they obviously, you know, hire uh, quite a few people. But I think for them to have, you know, a technological hub elsewhere in the country, I think makes makes a lot of sense. And I think there's quite a number of, you know, smaller areas uh, that are growing rapidly, you know, even even our former hometown of Omaha, you know, is, is, has a pretty large tech scene even since we've left. So, I mean, there's a a number of perceived smaller cities that I think could, could house Amazon pretty well and, and provide them a lot of land for expansion, a lot of cheap land for that matter, as well as, as, as a lot of capable employees. Yeah. That's the other part of it too, is just being landlocked there, you know, they've taken over South Lake union, uh, and there's just not a lot of other room to grow affordably anyway. But that, that didn't seem to stop them from that area. But yeah, it'll be nice. There's other opportunities to really uh, to do this, to grow. Where do you think they're going to go? What's your what's your pick if you had to say? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even know enough about this conversation to really to to really speak on it. To be honest with you, um, being yeah. in Seattle, I I know that they're here. I'm a very big Amazon supporter. <laughs> yeah, I use them for. Freaking everything. I mean, I, I order everything from them. It seems like, you know, I have I have quite a number of friends that work for them. 
I, I hate to lose anything that they can offer. Um, it, you know, it'd be great to have, have, you know, everything of theirs in Seattle, but that's not really a feasible argument to make. You know, I live in this city. I, I, I know the woes that we have. We're, we're waterlocked on, on multiple sides, you know, so the city can't continue to expand uh, at a rate that's that's fast enough to to accommodate all the tech employees that are coming in for Amazon and Google and, and all the other people that are trying to build, you know, huge technological presences here. Yep. So I think, I think it's a good move. I, you know, I don't know where they end up. I, I really don't. I, you know, I think they need to make sure it's in a technological center. You know, I don't, I don't think they're going to reinvent, you know, they're not going to create another Seattle somewhere else. Right. I guess uh, there needs to be some tech talent there to begin with. It'll be interesting to see what effect it does have on the city of Seattle because uh, they can move some of those operations away. Effectively, it becomes kind of like Boeing is to some degree, you know, where Boeing operates in many states and they continually threaten to move uh, services to other states unless the state of Washington will give them, you know, different tax breaks or perks or those sorts of things. Yeah. And that's what this sounded like a little bit too, is I think, you know, being as, as forward thinking as they are as a company, I I'm pretty confident that they've already narrowed it down or even have that place in mind and just want to have a little competition to see what kind of spiffs they can get and and how much money they can save um, on top of what they would have already done by moving in somewhere else. Yeah, I've heard a lot of speculation. Um, I mean, Austin is definitely uh, on the short list. It kind of, like you said, already a, a bit of a tech presence. You know, there's a lot of action in Austin right now in tech, a lot of companies moving down there and there's a lot of land. I mean, they have, they have vast amounts of land to expand. So that's, that's a possibility. I've also heard speculation too, that Toronto is one of the candidates and that would be a good one. I know they have this thing in, in, um, I don't know who I was talking to a gal that works in HR for Amazon was telling me for H1B applicants that are coming in overseas and they're waiting for their application to be accepted that Amazon a lot of times will house those guys in Vancouver maybe for two or three years until the application gets approved and then bring them in. So Toronto could be an appealing option to say, well, we're just going to, you know, especially with the current political climate here where H1Bs might be a little harder to come by, then uh, I could see how a Canadian option might make more sense. You've, You've got a more permanent foothold up there that you can you can bring a bunch of people in and kind of skirt around some of the challenges in the United States getting into the United States. I think the Austin option is, you know, having been there just recently, we were there, I don't know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, something like that for a conference that Christina was attending. And, and holy moly, like even in the, even in the probably, gosh, what's it been, maybe seven years or so since I had been there, maybe even six, the, the sheer amount of traffic in that city for, for the size is tremendous. I was completely shocked Really, when I was there. Yeah. It's, it's just insane. Um, and, and a lot of it is from this growth, you know, they are, they are a very, very growing city. They're kind of one of the faster growing cities, especially in the tech sector. But yeah, I was, I was completely shocked. You know, you, I would use Uber for instance, or even, um, Lyft, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock in the afternoon, though they would all be on uh, surge pricing just because, you know, there's not enough people and there's, you know, people wanting to get everywhere. What about public transit? Is that lean? Uh, you know, I know there's some a pretty good bus system. I do. I did use it the first time that I was in Austin. Um, in fact, 
it, I remember it being much more technologically advanced than than Seattle's, which isn't a real high bar. But yeah, I, I felt like the public transit was okay. I I don't remember there being any trains or anything to that effect. I I strictly only used buses there. But yeah, they definitely have many different um, ride sharing programs. They have uh, Uber, Lyft, and then they have I think two others that kind of came in and ruled the roost for a little bit while they had kicked out both Uber and Lyft for a for some some amount of time. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So, yeah. They all drive, of course, for all of them, but uh, there were a couple that I I had never even heard of. They're they're apparently Austin specific. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. For me, the weather is too extreme. I guess I would be indoors a lot of the time if I was there. I don't I don't really have a desire to go back into a more extreme climate coming from the silicon prairie as you were talking about earlier like i go back now and it's really difficult extremes for me so i don't know austin maybe not so bad in december or january but i'd have a hell of a time being there in in july and august (laughs) yeah you get the you get both extremes right you get the the insane humidity and you and heat and then you get the uh the potential for for some pretty extreme cold sometimes but when i was there it was pretty it was pretty uh pretty mild in terms of temperature i think it was 80 degrees or something like that and pretty humid it was trying to rain most days so you know it wasn't too bad while i was there but i i would agree with you i wouldn't i wouldn't choose to live in that environment you know regularly yeah will be very interesting to see how it unfolds though uh you know i think for the most part they had a pretty broad response 238 proposals i mean that's pretty good in 54 states so 54 states provinces districts and territories across north america i think there was only a few stories of people actually saying they didn't want amazon coming in but by and large pretty wide support was i mean it's (laughs) this is going to be a stupid question perhaps but is uh did seattle submit a proposal uh yeah well I don't, I, ooh, that's a, that is a good question. I know that Tacoma did, and I don't know if it was a joint thing that Seattle and Tacoma did. I know Seattle wanted to negotiate with them at least on, on how they could expand, but I'm not sure if they had a formal proposal. I, I know Tacoma did, though. Well, moving on, let's talk about uh, Elon Musk, who seems to be kind of like everywhere these days. I don't know how much you've seen about his solar panel work, he's kind of got solar everything anymore. He's got solar roofs that they just they just un, uh, unveiled semi-recently. I think you can even purchase them now. And it looks like um, a roof. Like, it's it's clay tiles or something like that. I mean, a look of it. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they have multiple different styles to match different types of housing. So I know they have kind of a more traditional, what would you call those, tar kind of based shingles. Uh, they also have kind of a more um, terracotta look. Um, version as well so they have a bunch of different aesthetics i guess you might say that you can get these things in and and they're just all individual solar panels that then store energy in their tesla power wall units that they also sell very cool there's an article from TechCrunch where well first of all i guess uh, elon said at some point on twitter that port you know puerto rico is pretty devastated from all the the hurricane disaster uh and he recommended that his uh, solar power and power wall system could be of a pretty help pretty helpful to the the country and to generate their own power and and not have to rely on building or repairing the existing power grid uh, well it turns out that they already have this on the ground and set up in part in Puerto Rico and it's already just about ready to draw power so it's pretty awesome to see them 
you know, a making good on their promises, I guess, you know, he has a, Elon has a pretty good history of saying some pretty crazy things, or at least they seem crazy at the time. But that's one of the things I think that's really exciting about him is he's, he's able to deliver. And I think this is a pretty good example of, of him being able to deliver and, and the power that's being generated by these, these solar panels that are in Puerto Rico are going to be used to power a hospital, at least to start with, um, and then continue to expand from there. So I think that's pretty cool. This is an awesome story. And I, I saw that photo it looked like they were taking over a parking lot near the hospital or something like that i was amazed at just the amount of progress in a short amount of time wasn't it only a couple weeks ago i mean shortly after the disaster that they started talking about about this as an option and i had just seen a photo i don't know if it was this hospital but it was one of the hospitals where they were actually doing surgery with power from their cell phone batteries like the lights using the LED lights on their cell phone to light up the room, um, not getting a lot of support from the government. And so to see these guys come in and already have this much set up, it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's it's very impressive. And, and they're doing a lot to help them as, you know, as much as they possibly can. Uh, you know, Elon himself donated $250,000 of his own money. They've kind of put on hold their electric semi project, which they were, I, th- I think, right about to unveil very, very recently here. And they're they're trying to to uh, move all that money into into pot that can help help Puerto Rico and, and help this effort with uh, getting solar panels and, and getting power to that area. Because I see on Twitter, I, I follow a number of people who who have friends in the area, and, and they keep retweeting stuff that's that's pretty horrifying, and, and you know just about how many people don't have power and the horrible things they have to do to go you know get clean water and, and just kind of basic life basics. It's it's pretty it's pretty saddening. Yeah. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of, not a lot of positive news coming out of Puerto Rico, but this is a really cool story and really exciting times for clean energy for Tesla and just some of the things that they've been trying to promote. You know, this is a great way to get that started. The positive spin on something that's not so positive. Agreed. Challenges of working remote. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So So you've been since you moved down to San Francisco and are still working for Quote Wizard, the company we both work for, you've been working remote and and have had some some challenges, I guess to say the least, especially for challenges. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, challenge. I mean, challenges, yes, and opportunities. I think that there's a little bit of both. It's a mixed bag for sure. It's not my first time working remote, but uh, things are a little different this time. But it's definitely. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. So I know uh, one of the first things that we kind of had uh, when you were gone is is there was a communication breakdown almost immediately, and it was and it was <laughs> kind of really really apparent. We kind of already knew it was a problem, but even before you left, but uh, as you were in San Francisco and trying to communicate with the rest of the team, it became kind of embarrassingly obvious at that point. So I think. You know, the first thing you need to do is is to put in in place the tools and and the processes t- to ensure efficient communication amongst uh, not only you but you and the rest of the team to make sure that you ha- you know what what everybody's doing in terms of uh, projects at the office and then those people still have kind of a an eye on you, I guess, to some degree to make sure that they know that a you're still there and and know what you're working on and want to continue to communicate with you on, on various projects that you're working on. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a cultural thing. If in order for it to be successful, it's got to be rooted in the culture. And we knew going into this that I was going to be somewhat of a guinea pig, kind of a test pilot, because you know, our company, um, you know, is a it's it's a mature business, but it still operates as a startup in a lot of facets. So we have about a hundred ish employees, but you know, we're used to working out of a central office, and we're used to being able to collaborate by walking over to each other's desks and having conversations. With a few exceptions, like we did open up a satellite office, and we have now another another couple people working remote so it's starting to to evolve but in the beginning it's it's been very much about you know front and center you know face-to-face kind of kind of collaboration so we didn't have tools for that and so yeah the initial shock of being away it was a little tough you know like the not having the tools the right tools not having training on the tools. I mean, that was the other part of it too, is just not everybody knew how to set up, didn't have a webcam, didn't have a microphone or didn't know how to set them up to create a meeting. So there was just a lot of areas where this was kind of like destined to fail in the beginning. But I think we've made some progress. It's interesting to see, especially from a non, see the non-technical or the business folks struggle with these types of things. You know, I think one of the very first problems you ran into was somebody not even knowing how to add, you know, a, um, a meeting into an email or into, a, you know, adding a Skype meeting into an email. It's, it's fascinating to hear, hear those types of things. Cause I even hear that from Christina as well in her company that, you know, it blew somebody's mind the other day that they could just click a button in Outlook and it would automatically append a meeting of some sort, you know, a video conferencing link to the email and, and they could just send it that way instead of having to go out and somehow manually generate that. It was just interesting and a kind of eye opening as to how, how much we take some of those things for granted. Yeah, exactly. And and you and I, you know, we're, te- we're more tech savvy and we're already pursuing those types of things on our own. And so I think there's a level of familiarity there, but, but there's a lot of folks that just have never had a need for that sort of thing. And the training is just, we don't really do, you know, that's kind of not an area that we could really improve on is just training across the board on how to use these systems. There's a lot of assumptions that we come in and just know how to do this and everybody knows how to do that. But but that's not the case, and and so um, I'm really trying to champion, a, you know, a more remote scenario. Like I want to really champion that we all learn how to use these tools and these products, and and um, you know, fortunately, we have a, a, a great IT staff that is is starting to um, really make those changes. It's just going to take some time. So you're about uh, what are you three weeks in at this point? I would say right. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Just I have a month here. Uh huh. So what would you say so far, if you were to say like the best thing and the worst thing about working remote, what, what would you have to say for that at, at three weeks in? Yeah, it's a little tricky at this point because it's still been in flux. It hasn't been clearly, you know, it's still taking shape. So I'm, I really was looking forward to getting away from some of the drive-by type distractions that happened in the office pretty frequently, you know, like even having headphones on, still getting tapped on the shoulder, that kind of thing. I thought for sure, like that I would just have vast amounts of time here to do things. And and that's not necessarily the case. It's, it requires the same or maybe even more discipline away from the office than, than it did in the office, just because now there's more text messages floating around or we use teams as an organization. So lots of stuff, lots of teams activity, whether it's just like the general channels or one-on-one stuff, that thing's going off all the time. So 
you know, it's kind of trying to figure out when it's okay to be away and turn that off and when I need to be present and be, be tuned in. So I'm, so I'm still trying to figure that out. I think it's been really nice. You know, I haven't, I was worried that I was going to lose contact with people that I was going to be kind of forgotten. And, I, and that hasn't been the case. I've actually been more connected to people than I, than I thought I would. And I, and I don't really feel that at all. And I, and I think to your point about notifications, don't you have some tooling uh, that you've set up to pretty much just put yourself on a do not disturb mode, more or less, so that notifications of all kinds just kind of cease from both maybe your mobile device and from your desktop or your or your laptop or whatever you're using? Yeah, I do have a few tools that I use for that. Uh, you know, Windows 10 has has um, their do not disturb mode, which works pretty well, their quiet hours feature. So I've taking advantage of quiet hours and then yeah i'll just set like a do not disturb on my phone too i've been pretty lax about it though the first few weeks just because i want to be available like i want that habit to be established that i'm reachable that i'm it's it should be no different to get a hold of me here than in the office um and so i think that i've done a pretty good job of establishing that i'm very responsive make sure that i get back to people almost immediately you know within even within a, a couple minutes not right away but but it's something that I'm probably going to try to factor in a little bit. I'm going to try to schedule it a little bit so that I can be heads down, just focused on some code. Even if it was just for an hour or two, I'd like to just get a couple hours, uh, chunks there that I can be offline and working. And I haven't really figured out that cadence yet. I feel like that's a pretty hard line to toe, uh, you know, going silent versus, uh, you know, kind of responding immediately because you kind of have that push and pull relationship with, you know, you're away. So, you know, easily forgotten versus, you know, if you are responding all the time, you're, you're obviously, you know, at your desk, you're doing things. So it's very easy for people to under, or feel like you're actively working. Whereas if you're, you know, in do not disturb mode, people are like, Oh, where's that guy? He must be out having a, having a beer somewhere at the bar or whatever it may be. So I, I totally get that that's a hard line to toe and I, I don't envy that. <laughs> yeah. It's a little difficult. Um, there are some natural times for, for that type of thing, though, I found that generally in the afternoons, it gets really quiet. So a lot of activity and in the early morning. I mean, that's the benefit of being remote, too, is that I get up pretty early. I can actually knock out a few hours worth of code before people even show up in the office if I want to. So I've done that a few times as well. And that kind of works well for me. Take some of my best when my brain is fresh and my thinking is at its clearest uh, and, and write code in the morning. So I've been building that habit you know, almost first thing, get up, get the coffee going and sit down and, and actually crunch some code, leave the email closed. Don't even open that up for a few hours. And then when people start rolling in eight o'clock, eight thirty, nine, nine thirty, that's when I try to go through the email, start having some conversations and, and we have our standups and that sort of thing. And that tends to work pretty well. I think that's a pretty good, a pretty good approach. Um, you know, keeping yourself pretty focused in the early morning hours. I used to do the same thing. I would come in and I would pretty much beat everybody into the office and yeah you get you get an hour to an hour and a half or so of of work and it's insane how productive you are during that hour an hour and a half of focus time that's something that I've actually kind of gotten away from and I and I really really miss doing that and I think that's something that I'm going to make it a goal for myself to kind of get back into that rhythm because it's 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 amazing how just, you know, people moving around the office or just talking amongst themselves or, you know, you, you messing around with notifications on your phone or on your coming from Teams or Slack or whatever it may be, 
it's amazing how disruptive that is to your to your focus. It's it's a huge huge distraction. I think more so than we realize. And I was I was just reading an article in the Harvard Business Review. They have a whole section. It's legitimate. I mean, there's a whole section right now on on distractions and on staying focused. So it you know it's clearly a hot topic. It's I mean it's nothing new, but. But yeah, it's it's surprising. Like some of the numbers are really surprising for me. What do they say? Like performance drops as much as fifty percent. IQ drops fifteen points uh, when you're multitasking. And so you know, it doesn't seem like it in the moment sometimes that that it's such a big deal. Like, hey, I can respond to this text or do something. But um, for me, like I notice it more when I've got my headphones on and I'm in the zone and I'm actually working on a solution and someone taps me on the shoulder and that's pretty disruptive. But any of these things can cause the same. There, there isn't really a, a differentiation, I guess, of the type of distraction. The distraction itself is uh, doesn't matter how minor or how intermittent it is, but it's it's definitely causing us to suffer in our performance. And so the best the best way to deal with that is to just have chunks of time where we can be in solitude, where we can turn everything off and just be heads down. I feel like when I was younger, I used to have a little bit better, easier time multitasking and continuing, I guess, in the zone or, or being able to continue to focus in, in blocks of time. But I feel like as I get older, that that, that has dissipated and, and disruptions in my focus time are, are far, more, far, far more disruptive than they used to be, or at least I perceive them to be far more disruptive than they used to be. I've noticed that as well. I don't know how how, how great I've ever been at it. I, I think that, yeah, I feel it more. I feel that it takes me more time now to get back into something, but, but I don't know if I've ever been really that good at it. I think that's one of those, you know, things that are kind of out there. One of those like mythical things that we can multitask and, and keep everything at the same level. And, um, I know at least right now, I just, I just, I noticed that that's just not the case. Like as much as I want it to be, and as much as I think if I practice, it'll get better. It, it really, uh, there's no substitute for just having a singular focus. That's fair. It might be me and just thinking, you know, being young and thinking I was the shit and I could do whatever the hell I wanted. I don't know. <laughs> well, and I think too, part of it is just that we've evolved in our careers to a point where, you know, we're a little more valuable, hopefully now than we were then. And I think that there's a lot of other things tugging at our shirt sleeves. You know, there's, a, I mean, being at a place for any significant amount of time, like now your hands have been on a few different projects. And so anytime anything comes up with any of those things, like, you know, I'm getting pulled in for that or you're getting pulled in for that. And so I, I think that's part of it too, is just there's more demand the more valuable you are at a place um, for your time. But I would say this, I think it's, it's a great thing. It's not for everybody. It takes a, a, it does take a tremendous amount of planning and uh, strategery. I don't know (laughs) (laughs) making shit up here, but I, it's not, it's not uh, something for everybody. And, and it took me a while the first time that I had done that to really build a discipline around it. And so I knew going into it this time, it wasn't going to be just that, um, panacea that people in the office fantasize about like, yeah, I'm going to be home. I'm going to be so productive and get so much work done. That can be the case, but it's not usually without, um, some kind of regimen and some kind of strategic plan because it could be very easy just to unravel and, and start blurring the lines of work and home. And, and now you're, you know, I know people that refuse to do anything related to home during work. I'm not going to 
change the load of laundry. I'm not going to unload the dishwasher, that sort of thing, because for some people, it's just it's, that's the opener, and then next thing you know, like you're not shutting off until twelve o'clock at night, and you're never really focused, you're never really in work mode, and never really present at home. It it turns into this kind of blurred gray area where you're kind of home working all the time and in between. So yeah, that's a real concern of mine. I'm I'm working on a routine that'll allow me to just keep work work and keep home for home, and that's not easy. I definitely have a friend uh, here in the Seattle area that that used to work from home and 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 had the exact same comments to say is that you know the line gets blurred and and once it's blurred it just kind of keeps bleeding and so you got to kind of set up barriers to prevent yourself from you know allowing that kind of blurring of the lines to occur and and work has to stay work and home has to stay home and uh for him it was it was actually even a physical uh barrier so you know, his office was his work and that was a enclosed room and that's the place that he did work and he stayed in there until work was completed and he never went out into the house. And then once he was completed with work, he would go out and do his other things. And, and so not only from not only a mental barrier uh, of what it is you can and can't do, it was more of a physical one for him. Yeah, I think that's a pretty ideal setup if you can pull that off. I know that I would love that. I'm I'm actually I only have a one bedroom, so I don't have the luxury of that. But you know, it's doable, but it just takes more in- intention for it to work for sure. So I've been interested in this topic for a little while because you've had some pretty pretty good results here, I think, in the last, I don't know how long you've been doing this exactly, but uh, you've been doing intermittent fasting. Uh, I think it's even referred to as uh, time-restricted feeding, right? It sounds like is more what you do because intermittent fasting, as I was reading, is, is more of kind of a broadcast term. Yes, so, so yeah, tell me about this because uh, I think you've, what, what are you down now? About 15 pounds at this point? Well, uh, yeah, that's about right. I'm just, just shy of that anyway. Uh, and I I really uh, stumbled upon this by accident. So it was actually uh, while we were out in France on our recent, you know, vacation and your, your wedding, you know, congratulations again, <laughs> by the way. But it was, it was really like on that trip that um, I started looking into this. I think what happened was, so so there's a group on Facebook. It's the H, HVMN Intermittent Fasting Group. We'll have links. You know, uh, I don't know where you're going to put those, at the end of the podcast or in the notes somewhere. That's right, in the show notes, yep. So we'll have that in the show notes. But um, yeah, I found out about this group through some article while I was traveling, and it caught my eye, and it was it originated, it was a group of, well, the concept has been around a lot longer, but this group started in San Francisco. It was a group of people that were trying to support as a support group for, you know, intermittent fasting, as you said, time, time controlled eating. Is that what you called it? Uh, time restricted feeding. At least that's what Wikipedia seems to indicate. Yeah. Time restricted. I mean, I think to the newcomer, and I certainly fell in this category too. Like you hear that term and you think starvation right away. I think that's like nat- a natural place to start is to think, oh, you're fasting. Oh, you're not eating. Oh, you're starving yourself. What is going on? And really that's um, far from what's what's going on. And so, yeah, there's many different ways to do it. I think the most notable story out there on intermittent fasting was that there is this um, gentleman that was I don't remember. He was obese. I don't remember his exact weight somewhere in the ballpark of like, he was somewhere North of 450, 480 wow. pounds, something like that. Yeah. And, and got turned on to intermittent fasting and under, you know, his doctor's supervision, he didn't eat for about 386 days, just over a year. 
did not eat a meal. He did have some vitamins and uh, supplements and, um, you know, sodium as well, like some, drank salt water, I believe, just to make sure that he was getting some of those things, but, but wasn't eating. And, and, and at the end of the whole thing, you know, was, was somewhere in a healthy weight. I don't remember again, the final weight, it was like maybe 150 to 180, somewhere in there, but he was a healthy weight. He was no longer overweight even, or anything like that. Healthy BMI and in perfect health. I mean, that's more important too. I didn't come out with, with zero muscle mass, didn't come out with any kind of health problems, actually got out of a lot of the, um, almost all the health issues that he had. And so pretty extreme case, but compelling nonetheless that you could actually go that long. I didn't know your body could go that long without food. And the idea simply is this, if you're overweight or you're obese, like you have enough fat calories stored, you're not starving yourself. Your body is just utilizing those fat calories, converting that fat into energy and burning it. And that's what sustains you throughout a fast. So yeah, that's kind of the the way I understand it. I found out about it while we were gone away and I've, you know, been at my heaviest ever. I used to be a, a, a cross competitive cross country runner and I was a lot lighter then in college and I, my eating and my drinking habits didn't change, but I stopped exercising and then bam, next thing I know, like I'm, I've put on a lot of weight. And so I, I really wanted to kind of do something about it. I have gone to other extremes before with juicing and that sort of thing and had, positive results, but it wasn't really suitable for me to do that in a social setting because now I'm very restricted on what I can eat and where I can go. And I like, well, I mean, being in San Francisco, being in Seattle, I, I love going out to eat and doing that sort of thing. So that didn't, it was a conflict for me. And this seemed to be an intermediate way that I could actually enjoy those things and still reap the benefits. Yeah. So as I understand it, the way that you're, you're behaving with the time-restricted feeding is, is your uh, kind of an on again, off again. So there's only certain hours of the day, usually in one big chunk that you can eat and then kind of a wider chunk that you're not supposed to. Is that correct? Yeah. So we all do it already. If we, whether, if you think about it, like, you know, when do you, when was your last meal today? I mean, you probably had dinner. What time did you have dinner? Uh, gosh, probably shortly after six, I would guess. Okay. So you had dinner at six, maybe you'll have a little snack after that. But, you know, maybe you're done. Are you done eating for the rest of the night at this point? It's about, what, it's still after 9 o'clock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, so you know, from, from 8 or 9 o'clock until you have breakfast in the morning, I mean, you might go up to 12 hours without having eaten any food while you're sleeping and, and, you know, getting ready in the morning and that sort of thing. So we already do it. We already do it for some period of time. Um, the idea, though, is you just ex- extend that and, and a popular way – there's, there's a few different ways people do it, but a, a very common one is what's referred to as 16-8, and the idea is that you fast for 16 hours and you eat during an eight-hour window. So for me, what I generally do is I'll finish eating around the same time as you. I'll have dinner and maybe have a snack afterwards, but then I, I'll skip breakfast, break fast breakfast, right? So I'll skip that meal and, and then um, wait until generally like noon or two o'clock, and I'll eat in an eight hour window around that. So if it's noon, then I'll eat from noon to eight, two o'clock, two to 10. I don't usually eat that late though. So it, maybe it's only a six hour feeding window on those days, but just extending it, you know, to a 16, eight, I've been able to, to lose, yeah, about 15 pounds and it's been about a month. So pretty, pretty quick results. And I find that it's easier for me to just abstain from food 
in that in that fasting window than it is for me to try to be calorie restricted. There's too much of a cravings for me or a yo-yo or I eat a little bit and I want to eat more. And so it's just easier for me personally just to stop. And a lot of people have this experience, cold turkey. And then when you do get hungry around 12 or two, then bam, like have eat healthy foods. You know, you're not going to eat more calories, generally speaking, in that shorter window. So even though you might be like ready to dive into a big plate, over time, research has shown that people don't actually, they're still calorie restricted because than they, as if they would have eaten all day long, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. I think the reason when you first told me about this that I found this really interesting was because uh, several years ago, I guess this has been, gosh, seven years ago, eight years ago at this point now, I lost, I don't know, 50 pounds, or maybe not quite 50 pounds, pretty close. And during that time, what I was practicing was more of a calorie restriction type diet, doing the calories in, calories out, counting that sort of thing just trying to be generally better better than worse but the more and more i thought about it after reading your article here or some of the articles about intermittent fasting is is that i was actually doing this uh without knowing that i was doing it um during that time i was actually not not eating breakfast most often and would usually go into lunch and have have a reasonably decent lunch um which actually usually ended up just being like a let's say a naked juice or some kind of a a smoothie type beverage and sometimes I would have a yogurt on the side of that or something to that effect and then I would go till dinner time at which time we would have a protein and just a whole heaping pile of veggies and then I wouldn't eat again until you know noon the next day so really in practice I was actually practicing this without even knowing that that's what I was doing and and it's very very possible that that this was an additional large contributor to some of that weight loss um, which I thought was actually really fascinating. It's really interesting. A lot of this, uh, this idea of fasting goes, uh, you know, contrary to what we've been told through, through public education around, around meals. I mean, there's a lot out there now that says, you know, eat three solid meals a day and have three snacks in order to keep your metabolism going the whole time. Like we need to keep feeding ourselves. And so like there's, it, it goes against some of the, the, you know, common beliefs about how we how we eat and when we eat the frequency and that sort of a thing. And so I was naturally skeptical at first just because, I mean, it's I, I've heard that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, so I should get up and have something to eat right away, kickstart that metabolism, right? And, you know, what, what they've demonstrated uh, and, and what studies have shown is that, that actually the opposite happens, is that your metabolism can even increase during a fast because going back to our caveman days and going back to our roots that was something that was a much more regular part of our reality we had periods of uh, intense feasting when we actually had food available and then um, maybe more dramatic periods of fasting maybe days even where there was nothing like no catch nothing to eat nothing that we could get get our hands on and so our bodies evolved to adapt to that and so we're used to going for longer periods with with nothing and then when we get food, we get it. And, and in order to keep us alert and alive to be able to catch food when we were in a long fast, our bodies actually would, would give us more energy and our metabolism would increase so that we could be on high alert for, for finding food sources. So it's really interesting, contrary to what we've been, we've been told, but, but the reverse you know, is true. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think um, if you're interested in doing this, I'll, I'll link in the show notes. There's a there's a really really great article that that you uh, link to f uh, from Dr. Jason Fung, who has a really fantastic Q and A session, kind of a frequently asked questions 
that actually I was reading through and there's actually some really great responses in there. So I'll make sure to link to that in the notes if you're interested in uh, learning more about intermittent fasting. It's worth it's worth a look and it's it's just really interesting stuff too and without getting into it uh, but just the how how we how our how insulin works and how our body responds that way and and the benefits that come from fasting and and giving our body a chance to get into maintenance mode and clean up and and it's very interesting subject so I would encourage you to take a look I think that about wraps it up for today you can contact us online on all the social media the show's Twitter is at Coffee Code Cast. Uh, you can follow Mike on Twitter at Pragma Mike. That's P R A G M A M I K E. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle P Johnson. And if you have a question, go ahead and shout out at us with hashtag Ask the Number Three C. The website, at least the temporary website, is CoffeeCodeCast.Lisbon.com. That's L I B S Y N.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast through all the normal channels, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iTunes, etc. Leave us a message, rate us on any of those services. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.